We've been in the middle of a message series entitled Different, and the core element of this message series is pretty simple. We're looking at how being a follower, a follower of Jesus uh, causes people to be different, and the difference that it makes both in life and in the world. And hopefully this message series is for everyone, no matter where you are in your journey of faith. If you're someone that is trying to figure out what you believe about Jesus, you're not sure if uh, you would want to follow him, hopefully this message series is helpful because it gives you a different perspective, a deeper understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, um, and the difference that it can or can't make in your life. Uh, if you're here and you consider yourself a Christian, someone who follows Jesus, um, hopefully this message series has been helpful as a reflection to think about what does God intend uh, for, the, for the differences that show up in our lives and what impact is that supposed to have um, in the way that I live life. And it gives us a point of prayer and reflection and adjustment where needed. Um, and so hopefully uh, this series has been a blessing. The passage that we'll be looking at today as we continue in this series is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. And it's our custom here to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. So if you're able to stand, I invite you to stand. Um, if that's not convenient for you, please don't feel uh, any, you know, any embarrassment about remaining seated. And uh, let me go ahead and read the passage for us. This is Luke, chapter 18. Verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, would you allow this word to sink into our hearts in a fresh way today and help it to change our lives as you intend. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to talk about the topic of repentance because having a lifestyle of repentance is one of the ways that God intends for his people to be different. Now, the topic of repentance is certainly a countercultural idea, unless you are a member of a faith community or you're inside of a church. Um, you know, when we live life going about our day, most people don't think about life in the context of repentance at all. And I want to start by acknowledging for some of us, uh, 
repentance can have some negative connotations. Like the first image that might pop into our head when we think about repentance might be some very unfriendly looking person holding a big sign and basically using the idea of repentance as like a sledgehammer, making people feel bad, intimidating, uh, a, a symbol of judgment or condemnation. And that isn't God's intention at all when he introduces the idea of repentance to us. For others of us, we may think about our own story, and we may think about repentance uh, connected to an initial decision of faith that we made. And um, when we think about it this way, uh, we might have a positive association with repentance in that instance, uh, but then we may think about repentance now as something that really we only have to engage in if we screw up in a major way or something goes terribly wrong. And so I was thinking about what this approach to, uh, um, to repentance is like, and it actually made me think a little bit about the DMV. Um, and so... This, picture actually evoked a really strong emotion for me. Um, just looking at it, it's like really strong emotions. Um, and the reason why this was associated with repentance for me is that the first time that we go to the DMV is for most people actually a very positive memory because most of the time, the first time we go to the DMV is when we get our driver's license. And it's not like the lines are any shorter or it's any, you know, less inconvenient, but when we go, we're excited because we're crossing this threshold and we're able, because of the trip to the DMV, to experience this vast amount of new freedom and we enter into this new phase of life. And so it's a very exciting thing. And then after we have our driver's license, we try our best to never have to go to the DMV ever again. We avoid it at all costs because we feel like, why would I subject myself to that kind of unpleasantness? And for some of us, that's how we think of repentance. But I want to suggest that repentance is actually something that is at work in virtually every facet of our lives, and particularly it is at work even if it's hidden in virtually all of our relationships. Every time we encounter a person. Uh, it is there inside of our uh, family relationships, in our relationships with our friends. It's there as we interact with our coworkers. It could be there even when we walk into a store and we either are working with someone who's serving us, or maybe we're at the store, we're serving someone else. Underneath those interactions, the dynamic, the questions, the tensions around repentance are often in play. Now, we don't often call it repentance. Uh, when something goes wrong, when someone says something wrong, when a relationship is strained or broken, we usually think of it in terms of someone needs to apologize, uh, someone needs to say that they're sorry, wishing someone would apologize. But at the heart of the dynamics of apology, and especially when apologies are done well, are the elements of repentance. Now, the problem is, for most people, including people in this room, I think if we were honest with ourselves, 
there are times when we are really bad at apologies. We don't tend to like apologizing. And that's not just true for those of us here. That tends to be true for people in general. And frankly, you can know this is true every time you turn on the TV and you watch public figures trying to execute very painful apologies and doing it very poorly. There's something about being human that makes it hard to apologize well. And I think fundamentally it comes down to the fact that most of us give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We usually know that we're trying our best. We like to think of ourselves as decent people. And so because of that, it tends to be much easier for us to make excuses rather than to make apologies. And, um, and so what ends up happening is uh, we end up getting like non-apology apologies a lot of the time. So how many times have you maybe heard someone say, oh, I apologize if I offended you? Which basically means I really didn't do anything that should have offended you, but because you are so sensitive and easily offended, clearly I did something that made you feel bad, and that really is on you and not on me, but I'm sorry for what happened. <laughs> or if you've ever heard the phrase, mistakes were made. Now, this phrase actually has its own Wikipedia page of all the times that this phrase was used across the decades by political figures and corporate figures that are basically just saying, you know, someone screwed up, but it wasn't me, and I'm hoping that I don't get blamed and that we don't have to change anything that we do. Mistakes were made. Or in, ter in today's terms, there's even a phrase, sorry, not sorry. Um, as in, I know you're expecting an apology, so I'm going to say I'm sorry, but I'm really not sorry. And so this is as in, you know, you pull up to church, there's one space left in the parking lot, you're signaling for the space, someone walks across your path, and as you're waiting to turn into the space, someone else drives into the space, and they kind of wave to you. Sorry, not really sorry. I'm in the space, right? So, not that that ever happens here. So, today I'm going to share with you something that I personally have found very helpful by way of kind of easing our way into this message. And, uh, you know, even if it's not directly helpful for you, it'll be helpful for the person that's sitting next to you in case that instance ever happens again, all right? And this is actually something that, um, that I heard in an offhand conversation with a friend. And uh, this friend happens to work in leadership development in a Fortune 100 company. Uh, and she just mentioned, oh, you know, one of the things that I teach to executives and to our managers is how to give an effective apology. And so she mentioned it very briefly to me, and I thought, wow, that is brilliant. Everyone should know that. So this is high-priced stuff. And I'm going to give it to you for free just because you're here today, all right? So um, this is what she teaches, how to effectively apologize in three steps, all right? So the first step is to accept responsibility. Um, and so this means that 
where it's appropriate, you don't have to accept responsibility for things that you really had no control over, um, that really weren't under your responsibility, but where something was under your control and you did something that caused harm for someone else, this means that you own it and then you make a clear apology that says, I'm sorry. It doesn't include an if, it, doesn't, it just says, I'm sorry, I did this, all right? And then that leads to the next step. And the next step is to acknowledge impact. All right, if we're apologizing, it means that we've hurt someone in some way. We've caused embarrassment, we've caused harm, we've strained a relationship, maybe we've lost trust. And part of us taking seriously the harm that we caused is we acknowledge the impact that we had. So we don't try to sugarcoat it. We don't try to minimize it. We acknowledge it. And then the third step is to make amends or adjustments. So if it's in our power to make it right, we say, I want to make it right. If, it's in our, if, it's, if there's something that we learned from the interaction that we can take going forward to prevent it from occurring again, we say that. This is what I learned. This is my commitment. This is the change or adjustment that I'm going to make. And we share that as part of us taking seriously the interaction that we had with this person that we're apologizing to. All right, so three simple steps. Accept responsibility, acknowledge impact, make amends or adjustment, how to effectively apologize um, in, um, in just three elements, okay? And the thing about this is that as we think about, you know, when we think, do I need to apologize to someone? And if I apologize, what am I going to say? As we think through these three areas, is there an impact I have to acknowledge? What was really my responsibility? What, do I, what am I really prepared to do to make amends or an adjustment? It actually takes us down the road to repentance. Um, we're going to look at that in the, as we tackle the scripture. Okay, but first, I want to give a practical example of what this might look like. So I'm going to invite um, my buddy Chris up. He's going to help me with this. And how are you feeling, Chris? You, do, you doing okay? Um, nervous? Maybe. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, if you're nervous, you want to drink a water? Sure. Okay, all right, let me get this. Whoa! Oh! Well, look at just what happened. <laughs> All right. So now, what should I say? Should I say, I, I think the platform was a little uneven. Can you believe the shoddy construction in this place? <laughs> or, you know, if I got you wet, I apologize. <laughs> uh, or, you know, a mistake was made. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> No, I can say, oh, I can't believe I did that. I spilled water all over you. I'm sorry. I, 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 I can't believe that happened. I'm really sorry. Um, can, I, can I help to, um, you know, here, here's a towel. Uh, maybe, oh, i happy to, yeah. Um, here, go ahead and clean yourself off. Um, and then I can think about, you know, is there something that I'm going to change? And this should be honest. I shouldn't be making false promises. You know, I'm kind of cheap. I'm not going to buy him a new shirt. So I'm not going to promise that. You know, but I can say, you know, Chris, if I ever call you up here again, I promise it won't have anything to do with water. Um, I'll be much more careful next time, right? So I, I want to make a commitment for change that I've settled that, I, you know, this is the adjustment 
um, or the amends that I want to make, all right? So let's give Chris a round of applause. All right, and then usually one of the ways that's helpful to end the interaction is to simply be able to say, um, I hope you can forgive me. Hope you can forgive me. Um, and I, I think that's actually uh, a better response than a direct question of will you forgive me? Because the reality is when we've harmed people in a significant way, a lot of times they're wrestling with the ability to forgive. And when we come up to them right in that spot and say, will you forgive me? That actually doesn't serve them very well. Now they're forced into this choice of either saying, no, I don't forgive you. Um, or they're forced to maybe pretend to forgive when they're not really there yet. But when we say, I hope you will forgive me, it is a reflection of the fact that we value the relationship. We want to continue to move forward with relationship with that person to go deeper, to be able to have the relationship restored. But we recognize it's their choice. It's not our choice. We can't control the actions of anyone else, but we can do our best to make an effective apology when we've done something wrong. All right? So um, I wanted to share this because part of our heart here at New Beginnings is we always want to make our teaching practical. And this is going to connect as we look into scripture and kind of have this in the back of our minds as we think about the dynamics of repentance uh, that we see in this passage. But I also want to acknowledge that there's probably someone here who's thinking, you know, that might have been helpful for the person next to me, but really I've just been waiting for you to start talking about the passage. Um, and so if that's you, I simply want to say, I'm sorry. I know it's frustrating to wait for something that you're looking forward to. I promise that we're going to go to the passage right now. Okay, see, it's useful in all kinds of situations. All right, you see, you saw what I just did there. All right, so Jesus is, um, is teaching this parable, and uh, he starts this parable with this description. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And I want to suggest that each of them has something important to teach us about repentance. So let's start with the Pharisee. What does the Pharisee have to teach us about repentance? So for many of us, especially if we grew up in a church, when we hear the word Pharisee, we immediately have these really strong negative associations. They are people who basically were enemies of Jesus. They're, um, you know, always getting things wrong. They are huge hypocrites, self-righteous, super proud. Um, they're basically the enemies in the New Testament. And if we just grabbed all of those associations in a really simplistic way, then Jesus' message seems like it's really obvious in this passage. You know, if you're, you know, a hypocrite, then you need to repent. But Jesus is actually teaching something different when he uses the Pharisee in this passage. And the way that we know this um, is because of the historical context. You know, if any of us were standing in that crowd when Jesus was teaching this parable, and, uh, you know, Jesus had described it, if we had talked to anyone who was in that crowd, and we had asked, you know, when you think of the most faithful people that you know, when you think of the people that take their relationship with God most seriously, when you think about the people that you know that are most devoted to God, who do you think of? And anyone in that crowd would have said, well, the Pharisees, of course. The Pharisees were people who were sincere. Um, they had a sacrificial faith. They were deeply devoted to God and to God's word. 
One of the best ways that I've heard the Pharisees accurately described is they sought to fulfill the law correctly and thereby contribute to the coming of God's kingdom. That's a beautiful, commendable goal, right? They believed that if they took the lead in obeying all the laws that God had commanded, they would help to usher in God's kingdom to earth. And that's why in verse 11, the Pharisee was standing by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, that may sound boastful. Maybe it was boastful, but it was also undoubtedly true. The Pharisees were very careful to keep God's law and even to go above and beyond so that they could create the conditions that God's kingdom could arrive more quickly. And so the Pharisee, for, the exa- for example, was standing uh, on his own. And that wasn't because he disliked other people. It was because the Pharisee was very careful to maintain the rules around ritual purity. And folks like the tax collectors that were always dealing with Gentiles that were going in and out of homes were not ritually pure. And the Pharisee wanted to make sure that I'm pure so that I can participate in worship. And this is something that the Pharisee took really seriously. Um, In addition to that, uh, the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. And, you know, Jews were commanded to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. And for the Pharisee to fast more frequently than that, to fast twice a week, was an expression of, well, if God is asking us to fast once a year, then if I fast more frequently than that, then I'm obeying the law more and I'm speeding up the the environment of their country to be able to usher in God's kingdom and God's rule more quickly. It was an expression of desire and devotion to see God honored and lifted up um, more fully. And then the Pharisee says that he ties a tenth of all he gets. And this is actually a really interesting expression as well. Um, when Pharisees tithe everything that they received, uh, what they were basically saying was, you know, when I get, receive something from someone, like someone gives me some money, someone gives me some food, someone, you know, gives me a gift, uh, really that person should have tithed on, you know, whatever allowed them to give that to me in the first place. But because I can't be 100% sure that that person was faithful in tithing, I'm going to make sure that whatever I receive, even though most of it has already been tithed on, I'm going to tithe on it again just to be extra sure that God is honored and that nothing is taken from God that is due to God. Um, And so it was a practice of extreme reverence and devotion that the Pharisee was engaged in. So let me make a quick point about this. When we understand the Pharisees in this way, it ought to change the way that we read the Bible. You know, especially if you're here and you consider yourself someone who takes your relationship with God seriously, it should change the way that you read the stories in Scripture, the New Testament, the accounts, the parables, to know that the Pharisees did too. And if we're wise and we're humble, then part of that recognition is knowing that 
the same blind spots that the Pharisees struggled with are likely to be the same blind spots that we may struggle with because we're both similar in seeking to be to honor God and to be devoted fully to God. And so that means that when we read scripture and when we read the New Testament, we should be especially careful uh, whenever Jesus says anything to the Pharisees because the things that he corrects them about and that he rebukes them for are probably things that we need to hear as well and to be careful that those things are not happening in our lives. So given that, when we look at this passage, what do we learn about repentance from the Pharisee? And the short answer is the Pharisee teaches us that everyone needs to repent. Um, That repentance should be a part of the lifestyle of those who are seriously seeking God. Okay, Part of the lifestyle of those who are seriously seeking God. So when we look at this passage, verse 14 tells us that at the end of the parable, the tax collector is justified before God and the Pharisee is not. And the outcome of this parable would have been mind-blowing to anyone who was listening to the parable. And it's interesting because Jesus even had a different choice, right? Jesus could have said, uh, the tax collector, because of his repentance, left just as justified as the Pharisee. And even that would have been incredibly surprising to all the people who were listening. But Jesus chose the Pharisee in particular for this parable because in everyone's minds that were listening, the Pharisee was the epitome of holiness and someone that would not have needed to repent. He was following all the commands of the law. Um, He he wasn't chosen because he was particularly bad or wicked. He was chosen in this parable because he was particularly good. And the only thing that the Pharisee didn't do and the tax collector did that causes the difference in this outcome in this passage is that the tax collector was repenting and the Pharisee was not. Which raises the obvious question, well, what did the Pharisee have to repent for? And I think it's an important question to ask because for many of us, maybe underlying that question, it's just the reality that we have a lot of days where we go about our days, we wake up in the morning, we get ready for work or school or our appointments, we fight traffic, we meet different people during the day, we try our best to get along with the people in our lives. And we're not perfect But when we go through our days, we don't commit any major sins. We haven't killed anyone. We haven't robbed anyone. We didn't cheat on anyone. And so when we end our day, for the most part, our conscience is clear. We don't have anything significant that is gnawing at our souls that is saying, we need to repent before God. And in the same way, the Pharisee came to worship without anything gnawing on his soul. The Pharisee had a clean conscience before God as he was standing there. And yet, the Pharisee needed to repent in order to leave justified. So, as I was thinking, as I was preparing for this sermon, um, I was thinking about how Jesus aimed this parable at those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. And so it made me think, well, what does that mean? 
um, what, how does that practically apply to us? And so I want to share a little bit about what I feel like God has been teaching me about repentance over, um, you know, these last several months. This has actually been uh, kind of a relevant topic. So uh, those who know me well know that I never imagined growing up that I would become a pastor. Um, probably the only people that are more surprised are my parents who are actually here in the room. <laughs> um, and for most of my life, I was a behind-the-scenes, kind of out-of-the-spotlight kind of person. And one of the things about being right here teaching is that it definitely is not behind the scenes. And so when I have to get up here and teach, I often deal with um, a pretty substantial amount of anxiety. And part of this is normal. Um, you know, I have conversations with my daughters around when they get nervous before school presentations. And I tell them, you know, nervousness just means that you care. And, you know, we get nervous about things that you care about. And, you know, I tell myself that every time I have an opportunity to speak. But the reality is when I speak, there's often an extra level of anxiety that I have to wrestle with. You know, there's a part of teaching and preaching that you just put yourself out there. And it's really hard for me not to put too much value in how people respond and what people think of me and what people think of the message. Um, and, you know, it's particularly a challenge at a special place like New Beginnings, where when I'm standing here, I'm standing in the place uh, where Pastor Herman usually teaches. And I love his preaching. And I'm very aware that I'm coming a week after John Ortberg. And so that's, you know, um, that's its own thing. Uh, I remember having a conversation with my daughters about this. You know, Daddy gets nervous when I have to teach too. And, uh, and you know, my daughter said, why do you get nervous? You don't get graded on your sermon. <laughs> In their minds. And I said, well, you know, I don't want people to think I'm boring when I give a sermon. And my daughter looked at me and she said, honestly, Dad, most sermons are boring. <laughs> Yours are fine. So, um, <laughs> take it for what you want. So, um, so, the way that I've responded to this anxiety is oftentimes I've just prayed and I've asked God to take it away. Like, just take away that extra anxiety. Make me more excited to preach. Give me more joy in preaching. Um, just make it easier, God. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Just make it easier. And, um, and as I was, I've been praying through this, God recently gave me an insight. And God reminded me that when I was growing up, the primary way that I felt good about myself, that I felt like I had value, the, the way that I had self-esteem and identity, was based on my performance, was based on my achievement at school. And there's probably nothing wrong with that on its own, but God reminded me also of the times that as I was growing up, I fed that sense of value, not just by doing my best, but also by comparing myself to other people. And, in, and all the times when I actually compared myself to other people and when other people couldn't perform as well as I could, I looked down on them and, um, and I felt better about myself for it. And sometimes it was just an internal mindset, like maybe walking into a class at college and scanning the room and thinking, I can take all these people, I'm smarter than them. Um, sometimes it was a much more overt action. It was something that I said or something that I did that made someone feel bad 
because I wanted to feel better about myself. And I had a strong sense that God was saying, you know, Tilden, you've judged other people, you've valued other people, including, and you valued yourself based on performance your whole life. You thought you were building yourself up, but actually you were tearing other people down. And what you've done for yourself across these years is you've built a trap for yourself. And now every time that you get up on stage and you speak, you walk into that trap and you're fundamentally worried about how other people are going to judge you and what people are going to think about you. And what I felt like God was saying to me was, you know, the path forward is not God snapping his fingers and making that anxiety disappear. The path forward is through repentance. For the harm that I've done in valuing myself and valuing other people with a destructive perspective that God never intended for people to be valued by. And so I've gone through a process of repentance. I wrote a list down of every instance I could remember where I looked down on other people because of how they performed, um, or I felt bad about myself because I had performed poorly. And that list stretched all the way back past second grade. It was quite a long list. And I prayed through that list person by person, instance by instance, asking God, for forgiveness. I said, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry that I harmed others and harmed myself with this destructive perspective. I don't want to do it anymore. Help me to change. Where I feel shame and guilt, thank you for taking it away. And it wasn't a one-time thing for me. It hasn't been. I continue to try to have this posture of repentance when I pray, not because I feel like God hasn't forgiven me, but because it's part of my worship. It's part of remembering that when I feel like I've been tied into this other way of looking at the world and other way of looking at myself and looking at people, I can actually submit that before God and acknowledge that it is not God's will or God's best for me. And it is a part of my worship that I can embrace the reality that God's love for me and God's value for me is rooted in the fact that I am a child of God. I am created in his image. And before I do anything, He already loves me with an everlasting love. And he loves you in that same way. And this is helpful for us when you think about it, in any season of life that we're going through. Sometimes life is going really well. All kinds of great things are happening. And approaching those seasons of our lives with a posture of repentance is helpful for us. Because sometimes when things are going super well for us, we feel like, well, of course things are going well. I'm special. I deserve this. I've done so much. And when we think that, of course, inevitably, there's a part of that which is, well, if things aren't going as well for other people, they must not deserve it as much as I do. And when we approach our good seasons with a posture of repentance, we remember just to be grateful for God's presence in our lives, that he brings seasons of blessings and seasons of challenge, and we can enjoy that season for what it is, knowing that our true joy remains rooted in God himself. And when we go through seasons of struggle and 
You know, people write prayer requests in. We, we look at them. We pray for them. We know how many people in this community are going through tough times. And even when we're going through life's most difficult moments, we can have a posture of repentance as we're going through them. Because there are times when we go through difficult, to- when we go through difficult moments that it creates space for bitterness and resentment to um, rise up where we feel like, you know, after all that I've done and after all the ways that I've tried to be faithful, aren't I special enough to you, God, that you would exempt me from the pain of this world? And part of the challenge is God doesn't promise that exemption. And when we feel like that, what we're saying is other people who are going through tough things don't have that kind of relationship with God, but I do. I ought to. And so even if we're not at a place where we're able to fully let that go, having a posture of repentance allows us to raise those emotions up to God and allow God to interact with them and to to bring us gently back to a place where we know that God loves us. He's for us. He's walking with us. He has the last word in our lives, even in times of suffering. And we can have that assurance and joy in our lives. So this is the gift that God gives us, that when we fall out of alignment with God, it's the gift of repentance that allows us to come back, to know that God loves us totally, perfectly, unconditionally. This is the lesson that we learn from this passage. We learn, you know, we we see it in the Pharisee that everyone needs to repent, and we see it in the tax collector that God responds to our repentance with the fullness of his love. And the tax collector shows us what a heart of repentance looks like. Um, Just really quick, if the Pharisee was chosen because he was so good, the tax collector was chosen because everyone in the crowd would have instantly hated his guts. Right? The, The tax collector wasn't just like an IRS agent. The tax collector was someone who was Jewish who was a collaborator with the Romans, right? So he signed up. He said, the, the, you know, the Romans um, are ruling over us. They need someone to collect taxes from the people. So I see an opportunity here. I'm going to sign up to be a tax collector. And the tax collectors were infamous for enriching themselves because they had the authority to collect whatever taxes they wanted. And so they would extort all this extra money from their own people and then just pay the portion that the Romans wanted and then to keep all that wealth from themselves. So they were, they were hated people. And yet in this parable, Jesus, Jesus is telling this story and it's the tax collector that leaves justified in right relationship with God. And the reason why we see the tax collector fully accepted by God is only what we see in verse 13. He would not look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if we go back to uh, the you know, three elements of an effective apology uh, that we started out at, um, the three elements were accept responsibility, uh, um, acknowledge impact, and make amends or adjustments. And... We don't necessarily see the tax collector using rote words to accomplish all three of these things, but we see everything in the tax collector's actions revealing a heart of repentance that is able to meet 
these three elements. And the biggest part of that is the tax collector does his repentance in public. Like, can you, like, so it's different from the tax collector just being in his house saying, probably very nice house, saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, God, uh, I'm, I'm sorry for what I do, and then just going about his way. The tax collector's reputation for his sin was public. The tax collector's abuse of his people was something that he did in public. And so now the tax collector is repenting in public, in public temple worship. The tax collector is bowing down to the ground, beating his chest, saying, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And everyone around knows that that's the tax collector. The people around him know, you collected taxes from me two weeks ago. You're the one now who is pouring out your heart before God. And so the tax collector knows that this public repentance is going to be held to account. That people are going to expect that his life is different when he goes around and lives his life. And the tax collector is saying, this is what I want. This is what I know I need to do because I need to return to right relationship with God. And Jesus says, because he repents, he goes home from the temple justified. Jesus uses the Pharisee, seemingly the best of the best of people, to show us that everyone needs to repent. He uses the tax collector, seemingly the worst of the worst of people, to show us that God loves everyone and that anyone can enter into a deep and personal relationship with God through repentance. That's what repentance is for. <laughs> Praise God. That's what repentance is for. Repentance opens the door to intimate relationship with God and with other people. So there's one more key point that we learn about repentance from this passage. Because when we see the tax collector going home justified, it raises a question of how can this be fair? For all the wrong that this person has done, how can he just go home justified? And the person in the parable that's a hidden figure that is behind the parable itself is the person who's telling the parable. It's the person of Jesus. When in verse 13, uh, the tax collector cries to God for mercy, and he use, uses a Greek word that actually means make atonement. He says, make atonement for me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And the tax collector is thinking about the sacrifices that are going on in the temple, the animals that are being sacrificed. And he's thinking, hopefully the sacrifices that are happening in the temple are going to cover me and make atonement for me. But when Jesus is telling this parable... Jesus knows that there's a different atonement that this tax collector needs. That the atonement that is going to cover the tax collector is not an animal in the temple, but it's going to be Jesus himself on the cross. And it's through Jesus' death on the cross where he takes the punishment that is due all the tax collectors, all the robbers, all the adulterers, all the murderers, all the Pharisees, all the things that you have done and I have done, it is Jesus' atonement that allows us to receive mercy when we repent. None of us are completely like the Pharisee or the tax collector. We're all a bit of both of them. 
Sometimes we're like the tax collector and we fall into obvious sin. and We need to repent. And one of the things that I would just encourage us to think about is the power of the tax collector's public repentance. You know, a lot of times it's a lot easier for us to repent in private. Um, and God can honor that. But a lot of times we get stuck in a place where we're basically just confessing to ourselves. And the problem with confessing to ourselves is that we don't have the authority to forgive ourselves. And so we get stuck with shame and guilt and nothing really changes in our lives. And sometimes it is precisely the step of taking that risk to share with another person and allow God's grace and mercy to flow through another person into our lives that actually forces our repentance to be fully genuine and fully authentic and that it actually brings the power to set us free. Just encourage us, the next time we're struggling with something and we're tempted just to keep it to ourselves because we're embarrassed or it feels too risky or inconvenient to share with another person, to really think about why that is. To consider bringing someone inside of our repentance that we trust and that will walk with us. And then for others of, you know, other times in our lives, we're like the Pharisee. And we've started to build our identity on something that is apart from God. And when we get to the point where we're tired of comparing ourselves to other people, where we realize the things that we're pursuing are not going to last, God invites us to repent. And he reminds us that only he can give us the identity, the value, the righteousness that can never be taken away. We enter into relationship with God through repentance, we grow in our relationship with God through repentance. It's what makes followers of Jesus different. And if we live like this and allow repentance to fill our hearts, it will change the way that we interact with everyone, everyone else around us. And imagine the difference that that will make in this world. So if We want to go home justified before God today. May we approach God with repentance. And may we think of it not like going to the DMV, but may we actually think about it like going to the airport and literally checking in our baggage, checking in our baggage and letting it go so that we can go on new adventures with God, so that we can soar with God, so that we can experience all that God has for us. Amen.